CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for joining us for uh, today's show. Another busy week. Boy, the New Year's holiday, the Christmas holiday, it is really behind us now. I barely remember uh, exactly when it all took place because we've had so much political activity in the days since uh, New Year's. We'll talk about a lot of that on today's show. Uh, remember, of course, you can uh, watch the show on Facebook Live. Go to the GPB News page on Facebook. You'll find us there. Uh, if you want to tweet us, please do it at politicsgpb. And uh, join the conversation on either Facebook Live or on Twitter. Jim Galloway is here, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Wednesdays and Sundays are your day in the newspaper. And, of course, you still oversee the daily blogs that we read on myajc.com, politics, however you get to it. Good afternoon. Hi, Jim. Good to have you here. Yeah. Your colleague, Tamar Hallerman is joining us uh, from Washington, D.C. Tamar, we just thought we'd better get you in the mix because I know you've got nothing to do up there right now. We wanted to give you just some activity to keep you interested. Nothing ever happens here. It's true. <laughs> we look forward to hearing from you about what's going on up there as the shutdown moves into its third week, and uh, we'll be talking about that. State Senator Jen Jordan is uh, with us, Democrat. Your district is good portion of north at this northern northern areas of the city of atlanta you move up to uh toward marietta right you got uh you've got uh, lockheed up there yeah absolutely we go up to marietta we grab Smyrna, Air Base, binings yeah. we cross over grab buckhead proper chastain historic brookhaven and then all the way up to sandy springs i don't know how you keep track of all <laughs> Thank you for being here, Jen. Thank you for having me. Kerwin Swint is with us. He's been a longtime professor of political science at uh, Kennesaw State University. But uh, you're in addition to this new role that you've talked to us about. You're also interim dean of humanities, political science. You've got a big chunk of real estate of your own up there. It's, it's hugely important. Uh, yeah, and you should see my to-do list. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> And uh, Cobb County, well represented, first by uh, uh, KSU and Kerwin Swint, and then by Heath Garrett, a Republican political strategist who's you've been operating out of Cobb County for a long, long time, Heath. Too long, but I'm glad to be here. What a great Monday. <laughs> it's good to have you with us. Um, you probably all heard on the NPR news break the breaking news that we've been following since about 1130 or so this morning. President Trump heading to the border on Thursday. He's going to go down and make a visit. And apparently the White House is preparing to ask uh, all of the TV networks to clear time for the president to give a primetime speech about his request of five point some billion dollars for border security measures, a wall, cement, steel beams, whatever it is. Um, Galloway, this story just it, you know, if he's going to the border on Thursday, I would suspect that means we're not going to have any deal in place before then. No, no, and and, and this will be interesting. This is, I, I believe, this is the first request for for prime time uh, air uh, in the in the Trump administration. So it'll be interesting to see num number one whether the, the the big three networks give it, and then whether Dems are going to ask for and get uh, equal time to respond. Uh, tomorrow, I know that uh, the House and the Senate don't come back until tomorrow, but there are members up there. I don't know if any of our members have uh, uh, reported in. What are you? But are, is there talk up there about the president now uh, heading to the border? I haven't heard much about that since it just happened. But overall, I think people just feel stuck. Um, all of the negotiations right now are happening at such a high level. We really are talking about Vice President Pence and Speaker Pelosi and Minority Leader Schumer. Um, Mitch McConnell isn't even really in the mix in all of this. He's been heavily criticized for that. So even our most senior lawmakers, including David Perdue, are kind of stuck to wait and see what comes out of all this. Yeah. Um, you know what? Let's, let's go ahead and talk about some of the uh, Georgia— response to what's happening uh, with this uh, uh, 
border problem, with the, the question about funding for the wall. Um, the uh, uh, Saxby Chambliss, Jen Jordan, last night was on MSNBC, the former uh, senator from Georgia. And, um, you know, Saxby, it's interesting, back when he was in the U.S. Senate, and Heath, you'll remember this better than anyone, he tried to figure out a way, He be, and, and your senator, uh, uh, Johnny Isaacson, looked for a way to come up with some comprehensive solution to the immigration problem. That's right. And what happened to both of them, but more, more specifically Saxby Chambliss, at the state Republican convention? Within a week of introducing truly bipartisan, comprehensive border security legislation, Saxby Chambliss came home and was booed at the Republican state convention in Gwinnett County as he walked onto stage. It was, it was it was a surprise. John, Johnny escaped it. He, he, yeah, we were not right. in cycle right. at, at that year. Right. Johnny was new and was not up for re-election and therefore wasn't supposed to be on stage. And uh, the talk radio and uh, Fox uh, you know, television stations had labeled it all as an amnesty bill. And by the time Saxby got home, uh, the grassroots had uh, identified it as such. And, and, and you know, the thing, I, I, I was there and I remember it. And his was sin too. was his sin was uh, uh, saying that Georgia still needed guest workers, which is still the case. Hasn't changed. Right. Yeah. You and, know, Jen, all that, that said, um, Shambliss on MSNBC is still basically talking about we've got to find a way to get past the partisan divide on this issue of immigration, certainly on the issue of the funding of the wall. Here's a quote uh, from MSNBC. Compromise is still a four-letter word, Shambliss said. The real problem with trying to have a compromise here is that Folks are just dug in on both sides. Nancy Pelosi says the war, wall is immoral. President Trump says he's not going to budge. We have to have a wall. Where's all this headed? Well, I kind of want to go back to the, the idea that this happened in Gwinnett County, you know, with, with Saxby Chambliss being booed. And now where are we at <laughs> after the most recent elections? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that that really is kind of a look into where the Republican Party needs to be thinking here because, I mean, I don't think that most of the country is where um, President Trump is with respect to the wall. But in terms of, of bipartisan um, kind of coming together, we absolutely need to be working together on this issue. And we need to stop talking about it in, in kind of a right-left construct. I mean, I think we all agree we need border security. I'm all for that. Um, but we don't necessarily have to say, well, it's the wall or nothing. And I think that's kind of where we're getting bogged down here. And it's becoming too political and it's being used as a political football, um, frankly, by the president. Kerwin, are you at, I mean, at a major institution like Kennesaw State, a public institution, there's going to be federal dollars uh, that are involved in uh, how you run your place, maybe not in your department specifically, but at a certain point, if they don't resolve this, the university like UGA, Georgia State, are going to suffer to some extent. Well, if it goes on long enough, most federally supported or subsidized agencies will feel something. I mean, you know, some more than others and some sooner than others. But, you know, I think Jen's right. And uh, the problem is both political parties keep using a wall solely for political purposes. And poor old Saxby Shambliss, you know, he's just a cautionary tale uh, as, as a disincentive to work across party lines. I mean, it's, it's almost like the death knell of cross-party relations in Congress. It's a shame. Galloway, in this uh, piece that I read in the Jolt at uh, my AJC, the lead is, speaking about Saxby Chambliss, if you want a neutral party in Washington, get a dog, preferably one that is blind and deaf. That sounds like your language. No. <laughs> I, think, no. I, think, I think I recognize a Galloway lead when I see one. No, no. Well, it was just a, a, a gentle allusion to the fact that, uh, that, 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 that that same interview kind of pressed Sax Saxby on uh, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders' uh, 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 statement that 4,000 uh, terrorists had been stopped at the Mexican border, which right. is, is not so. But, right. he, but, but Saxby wasn't too hard on her on that, and uh, it comes to light that he's on a presidential advisory on U.S. intelligence. Yeah. 
No, that's right. And I think we ought to be good for the listeners to hear two things on this issue. Number one, the Isaacson Chambliss Comprehensive Legislation of 2006, I believe, it, or 2007, I'm sorry, 2007, was a $20 billion border security package. We're now arguing over $1.3 versus $5 billion. Um, it was 20,000 additional uh, Border Patrol agents. It was a huge host of drones and other technology to create a virtual fence or structure, but you wouldn't have a physical structure for 2,000 miles. Uh, but it had wall, it had fence, it had drones, it had all kinds of, mod- at that time, modern technology in it. But it also had a pathway to legality, not to citizenship, but it got labeled as citizenship and amnesty. Uh, had that passed. For, for, uh, the, for, 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 for people who live here and for DACA. And for DACA, right. Both would have had to pay a penalty, touch back home, and but could come back if they had a job and a clean record. And now that's what the president actually supports. Is interestingly enough, however, we've We've gone away from the comprehensive solution because it's too easy to pick at a comprehensive bill, and we're down to DACA for the wall, uh, which there is a grand bargain to be had there. But right now, and I think this is important for, for our listeners to know, both parties have political incentives in their bases to not compromise on this issue. Donald Trump is winning with his base politically, and Nancy Pelosi is winning with his base, with her base uh, uh, politically, and that's why there's no opportunity for compromise in the future. And I think Mitch McConnell is sitting back to play the adult in the room when the opportunity arises, but it's well, not there. Well, okay, that's an interesting way to look at what Mitch McConnell's role is right now. But before we get to that, Tamar, uh, let, let me – is DACA – on the table as an exchange for the $5.7 billion for Trump's wall? I mean, I understand that there are people who would like to think that's the kind of compromise that might get us out of this mess, but I'm not hearing—I mean, that's a non-starter, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, reports over the last few days, you've seen that the administration has, has offered that, kind of floated that as a possible deal, but it, it really is sounding like Democrats aren't going to bite this is an issue that plays so well with their bases going into a presidential election. It would be hard to not want to save that card for a later date. Um, you know, I think everybody that I talk to uh, when we start gaming out how this might end, um, you know, it's always harder for the party in a shutdown negotiation who's asking for something extra. Um, it's always harder to, to win at the end of the day. I think both sides is going to be a debate over money. Um, and, and both sides are going to have to come up with some little shred of something that they can go back to their bases and see, look, I got something for you. Even if it's not a wall on Trump's part, something that he can call a wall, even if it's just increased fencing in certain areas or a little more money for border security. Both it, sides have to save face. As long as you've got the ball, Tamar, uh, where, what, as you talk to uh, Georgia members up there, uh, is everything just breaking down along partisan lines? Has there been any kind of uh, chink in the armor in terms of Republicans in our delegation uh, saying, well, maybe it's time for uh, uh, Trump to be a little more uh, uh, conciliatory. It's time to get the government open again. Is, are you hearing any of that? I have heard none of that from our delegation so far. Um, you know, last week, a lot of folks were, were gone, just coming back from the holiday. Um, and I think the longer this goes, however, um, the, the more that people will start agitating for a solution. With the holiday season, um, you know, the first two weeks of the shutdown, it was kind of hard to see the impact of all of this. But all of a sudden, you're hearing stories about TSA agents calling in sick because, you know, they're not getting paid and they can't afford to get to their jobs. You're hearing about potentially food stamp benefits not getting paid out in February. As we start hearing more and more of those stories, I think it'll be a much different tenor from our lawmakers. You know, it'd be nice to think DACA would be on the table, but it, too, has become a political football. Democrats shut that down last time, uh, so there's no realistic uh, compromise on that. But, you know, I think Trump might be more willing to give than the Democrats on this one. He's already talking about, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be concrete. You know, it could be made of some different material. I think he thinks he has more wiggle room than the Democrats may think they have. Jen, um you know, Tamar made the point, and, and there's there even more that we could talk about in terms of consequences here. This is going to start hitting home with people. SNAP benefits, uh, we, I think we have money to get through the end of January, and then people who are on what we used to call food stamps are going to be cut off. Um, here's another interesting thing that I, I've been reading about, which is that if the IRS shuts down, not only 
uh, do they not process your taxes and get you that return that you're hoping for early? But when you go to close, when you want to buy a house, if IRS isn't there to confirm uh, your income, your W-2s, your tax records, it, this could start clogging up the mortgage ba- uh, lending industry, too. Absolutely. I mean, and what we also have to think about, too, is the fact of Trump's tax law um, and the training for the IRS workers, right? I mean, it, it all kind of goes into place. And, and if we've got to get those revenues in. And so it's one of those things that we're basically grinding the government to a halt. Um, but, but to go back to kind of SNAP benefits or people not um, being able to pay their mortgages or whatever, these are real people. And what it feels like with these continuing resolutions time after time is that it's just a high stakes game of chicken that people just get behind mics and talk about. But at the end of the day, it's people not being able to close on a home. It's not getting a health benefit. It's not seeing a physician. And when that really the rubber hits the road there, I think that's when you're going to see people actually have to come to the table. Yeah, uh, um, Bill, we've already uh, talked about uh, just the irony that the border security guards are not being paid. They're being required to show up but not paid. Coast Guard uh, members are being required to show up but not paid. But uh, another thing that – and this this does affect uh, Georgia uh, employment in particular – is that E-Verify has been shut down. Which is highly ironic, ironic, yeah, yeah. given that it's 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 the means by which Georgia employers find out whether they are they're 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 the people they want to hire are illegal or not. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to watch uh, how uh, events unfold this week. We'll see about President Trump uh, whether, in fact, he gets his time tomorrow night to address the the nation about his position on the wall. Uh, on border security and then the trip to the border. Let's do this. We're going to come back to Washington in a few minutes because there is an interesting uh, 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 piece that uh, uh, reports about David Perdue and his allegiance to Donald Trump, even in the times when Trump is, you know, starting to face more criticism than he has in the past. And we're going to get to that in a couple of minutes. Uh, But, Jim, let's go We've, we've got a new governor coming into office in one week, a week from today, just about this time. It's now 2.22 if you're watching, listening to the show in real time. Uh, uh, Brian Kemp will be sworn in as governor of Georgia. And he's taking this week before the inauguration, I think starting tomorrow, to make a little swing around the state. Where is he heading, and what does his the map well, he's of got, his? He's got nine. I, yeah, he's got nine stops. Uh, let me see if I can call some out. Uh, I know he's going to be make a stop at Fort Valley in Savannah. Uh, Gainesville is the closest he's getting to Metro Atlanta. There are quite a few others out there. I'm sure that uh, if uh, you could very quickly look around and and poke through, this is this is interesting because number one, it, it, it's very reflective of what Trump did. But I think there is. I think there's. You're looking at a a a a a response to a similar situation. I mean, the situation in Georgia, as the situation nationally, is that Republicans are facing a demographic challenge, and and when your when your base is starting to shrink like that, and the other side is starting to expand, the last thing that you can have is a a rupture in your base. It becomes very, very important to 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 keep to keep that base held together, and uh, and more than a little bit uh, excited or agitated, if you will. And so his trip this pre-inaugural week is going to reinforce, in many cases, those base voters. As you say, he doesn't get closer than Gainesville to Metro Atlanta, so uh, he's he's really staying out of the metro area. Kerwin, one of the figures that Jim used in this column he wrote about this is I thought was fascinating, and I didn't realize it until I read it. Georgia's 10 most crowded counties, you say, Jim, contain roughly half the state's 10 million residents and only two, Kerwin, (laughs) Cherokee and Forsyth, are still solidly Republican. 
Wow. Yeah. Well, like Jim said, we are in the midst of a big demographic shift, and long term, that should hurt Republicans, help Democrats. But you look at the metro Atlanta counties, the ones that are highly populated, they're uh, trending Democrat. It's a blue area. The uh, more urbanized areas of the state, you know, the big the big population counties are going to be more Democrat. So, so you're seeing Kemp try and and pick up on that Trump strategy of, of boosting your base because. You know, uh, from here on out, turnout is going to be essential uh, if they're going to be competitive in elections. So he wants to keep that base uh, hungry and and well fed, especially 2020. I oh, mean, yeah. because yeah. because you've got margins in the House uh, getting pretty darn close to uh, to 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 the danger zone. All so right, forget about persuasion. Now it's turnout. Yeah, sorry. But in, no, that's fine. In the more immediate. Uh, present with a legislative session beginning next week, Jen, one of the other points that Jim makes in this column is that um, you're going to see this, he calls it city mouse, country mouse sort of tension (laughs) play out in the legislature. One really powerful example of that will be that you're going to uh, very likely have to make some decisions based on a study committee uh, that Burt Jones, I think, uh, oversaw, was chair of about whether the state ought to have some control over Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport. There's that tension playing out because certainly in Atlanta, they don't want that to happen. Absolutely not. I mean, it looks like a power grab. I mean, I I really do think it's short-sighted for Governor-elect Kemp just to go to the areas where he already has his base. Um, The great thing about uh, Governor Deal was that once he became governor, you felt like he was governor for the entire state. And he really tried to approach it that way. So to start kind of your tenure of going in, in, in a really divided election and electorate to kind of draw the line in the sand like that, that is incredibly short-sighted when it comes to actual governance. I mean, it may help with elections in the short term, but at the end of the day, I mean, when you're talking about the metro Atlanta region in these various counties, you're talking about a significant amount of revenue that actually powers this state. And it's one of those things where it's like we have to be a partnership because we all have to be moving forward together and thinking about the greater good in terms of the entire state. Yeah, we're going to watch how this unfolds. But he's, my recollection is that in his first months or maybe first year in office, Nathan Deal uh, certainly proposed a number of pieces of legislation that played to his partisan base particularly on some of the immigration bills that he introduced that um, were very restrictive in terms of of, uh, undocumented uh, residents of the state and what they could and couldn't do. He moved to the center. I'm not sure he started there. We'll see what Kemp decides to do. Well, I think he he broadened his agenda, and I think you're going to see the same thing from Brian Kemp. I think the Kemp folks are probably sitting back looking at this going, hey, y'all are reading way too much into this. He's going to the markets outside of Metro Atlanta because, as many of us know, Metro Atlanta news covers politics pretty extensively, but you don't get as much coverage in Columbus, Albany, Macon, Savannah. And so most of these places, he's going somewhere where he's not been covered wall-to-wall since Election Day, and he's going to a place where he had ran up, you know, major margins. I do know Brian very well, and I have a feeling that we're going to be looking back in two or three years going, wow, that's the Brian Kemp that everybody said they knew, but we didn't see in the campaign. I do think on economic development issues, on health care, and on education, he's going to bring forward an agenda that's much broader than people have painted him as. And uh, therefore, I think that, you know, Jen's last statement was right. It is a partnership. We really uh, can't survive as two Georgias or as city mouse, country mouse. Uh, we're all intertwined together. And the other half of the population does not live in those 10 counties, and they feel left out. I'm from one of those counties, and and my family and friends still feel left out, right, from what's happening. And they're just as important economically as a group. Jim, i got to get to a break. But before I do, one of the things that you you talk about in this column of yours is how we are going to deal with home rule in this kind of divided government. Just give us a quick idea of what you mean by that. Okay, basically you've got uh, uh, county by county uh, ordinances and and governance laws are are pretty much put together by local state lawmakers, state lawmakers who who represent a piece of that county. 
uh, Gwinnett County's delegation was Republican last year. This year it's headed by Democrats. Uh, Cobb County's, uh, I think the House dele- de- delegation went Democrat. The Senate is tied. Uh, that in, in Gwinnett, that means a whole lot for the terms of uh, there's a proposal out there to, to increase the size of the county commission, to increase the size of the school board. Will the state legislature allow that to happen? Yeah, you know, that's going to be interesting to watch, Jen, um, because typically, traditionally, when a local delegation votes on an issue and and comes up with what they want to do, the legislature as an entire body uh, believes that it is their job to support what the local delegation has done. Galloway raises the question of whether that may change in this new equation downtown. Well, it's one of those things where you want to be treated the same way. So if you're from Dodge County, you don't want anybody throwing a wrench into whatever you're trying to do in Dodge County. So you're like, you know what, if that's what DeKalb wants, that's what DeKalb wants. But what's interesting in terms of Cobb is that it's actually a joint delegation, a House and Senate. So even though it is even in the Senate three to three, um, and I'm part of that, um, because it is considered a joint um, legislative delegation, the Democrats have actually taken control over the Cobb delegation. Same thing. Gwinnett they've taken control of. And in terms of Fulton County, we now have a supermajority. And all three of those had been controlled by Republicans. That is incredibly significant from everything from Board of Elections appointments or even how they're put together or Board of Commissioners, all of these things that tend to be more local issues, but actually the issues that people care about are going to come down to these legislative delegations and these local leaders. All right. I've got to get to a break. Um, when we come back, I do want to talk. We're going to send this back up to to you in Washington to kick us off on the second segment of the show tomorrow. Let's talk about uh, David Perdue and a uh, piece that he wrote in response to Mitt Romney's Washington Post op-ed piece questioning Donald Trump's character. We'll get to that after this. Financial contributions from listeners like you are not the only gifts that keep GPB on the air. In fact, many listeners have already chosen to donate a used vehicle to GPB. We'll pick up your vehicle for free and send you the paperwork for your taxes. Get started today. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org cars. That's 877-GPB-1-CAR or gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. My name is Chuck Reese. I'm the editor of an online magazine called The Bitter Southerner. I've seen decades of misconceptions about the South from the Beverly Hillbillies on down. But in my new podcast with GPB, we're going to challenge those stereotypes and paint a very different picture of the American South. Join me for The Bitter Southerner podcast. Details are at bittersouthener.com. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Um, so most of us know that last week, uh, just before being sworn in as a member of the United States Senate, Mitt Romney wrote an op-ed piece for The Washington Post in which he really cast shade, threw shade at John, Donald Trump's character. He said he simply doesn't have the character to be president. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, he said, I agree with him on a number of policies, but this is not uh, a, a man of great character. Uh, David Perdue, Tamar, wrote a piece responding to that in what, in The Hill, I think, it first appeared? Am I right? Oh, Perdue's piece was in The Post as well? I didn't know. Okay, I got that wrong. Thank you. All right. But he attacked Romney in return, said what we've, we've seen when a divided part, what a rep- divided party means for Republicans. It means we help put Democrats in charge, Purdue wrote. It means we help them advance their radical liberal agenda, which has proven to fail the very people they claim to champion, working men and women. And then he says, as the only former chief executive of a Fortune 500 company in Congress, I was initially thrilled by the prospect of welcoming another business guy to the Senate. But Romney's behavior before he was sworn in or cast his first vote was deeply disappointing. Uh, uh, Tamar? Really going to be interesting to see Romney and Purdue when they uh, uh, see each other in the cloakroom of the United States Senate. 
Exactly. And these are two men who have supported each other over the years. Apparently, they, they had a relationship going back to um, the mid-2000s. They served together on a board ahead of Salt Lake City getting the Olympics. And uh, Senator Perdue supported Romney when he ran for president in 2012. Romney supported Perdue when he ran for Senate in 2014. And what was so interesting about this op-ed is that it was entirely unsolicited. Um, you know, David Perdue felt so strongly, I guess, after seeing this initial op-ed from, from Mitt Romney, that, that he felt the need to go to the press to basically say, hey, don't negotiate in the press. Don't trash on the president in the press. <laughs> yeah. He ran to the media, Perdue says, instead of picking up the phone. That's exactly what is wrong with Washington, says Perdue in the piece he published in the media. <laughs> in, 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 general, in, in general, you know, Purdue has gotten his share of criticism for, um, you know, being very publicly supportive of the president, even in moments where a lot of Republicans were backing away, like right after Charlottesville. And his defense was always that, hey, I have disagreements with the president all the time, but I pick up the phone and call him. I'm not doing it publicly. And, and kind of in the ramp up to 2020, you know, when he's going to be on the ballot and Trump, too, he's telling others to uh, do the same yeah. thing. You know, we in, in the earlier segment, we were talking about Governor-elect Brian Kemp's uh, tour through rural Georgia in order to, to unite the base. This is the same thing. Yes. This, is, this is precisely the same thing that's happening with 2020 in mind. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because, Kerwin, it, it appears to me—look, we are certainly seeing, and we saw it in the 2018 elections, that— Trump could travel to uh, states where that were already red, that were likely to elect Republicans anyway, but he did not help in districts, certainly in congressional districts, uh, that decided to go for Democrats even after a Trump visit. So you, you might wonder whether Purdue is going to continue to be a 95 percent of a vote for Trump in addition to speaking out for him as he does all the time, or whether he's going to decide he's got to be a little more cautious. At least initially, here's our answer. He's tied to Trump. He is. I mean, I think he's already made up his mind on that score. He he thinks of himself as Trump's biggest supporter in the Senate, and I think Trump probably agrees with that. And we were just talking about the importance of, of the base in a state like Georgia, and I think Dave, uh, David Perdue is going to double down on that Trump support. I really do. I think, I think this is a really interesting strategy, but he definitely tipped his hat. Um, you know, some of his folks have said to me over the last six to 12 months, hey, we are the president's biggest supporter. We're going to use that as our uh, power base in Washington because he, you know, David Perdue says he's not going to stay long enough to be able to you know, use seniority in the Senate. But the other thing, politically, I think it is a risky strategy, right? And we mentioned to it earlier, you can either go after base turnout or you can do base turnout plus try to you know, identify with some of the swing voters. Most Republican strategists right now, and I think this is a mistake, and I've said this to them many times uh, around the country, have decided we're going to go base-only turnout. And that's what the president's going to do in his reelection. That doesn't mean it's the right strategy for the state of Georgia in a U.S. Senate race or a governor's race anymore, because uh, there's a certain point in time where if the Republican Party, if we don't do a better job of looking like the state of Georgia and looking like America in our candidates and in our messaging, uh, you know, demographics are going to be destiny. Demographics don't have to be destiny, but but, da but David Perdue has definitely decided he's bet the farm on running with Trump all the way through 2020. Jen, Heath, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, if you don't mind, Heath, I sort of kind of half agree with you, and, and half I think you can sell it the other way. Of course, he's unabashedly a Trump supporter. He can't run away from that. But talking with Perdue and some of his, you know, his senior advisors, they also think that he has enough of a brand as kind of a businessman. And now that he has a record, you know, talking about slashing taxes and government regulations, they think that will help appeal him to maybe some of those suburban voters who uh, who voted for Democrats in this last election, but who will be up for grabs in 2020. It's yeah. unclear whether they buy that, but I agree with Jamar on that. Jen, given, given the vote in the last governor's race, given how close Stacey Abrams actually did come to uh, uh, forcing this thing into a runoff, it strikes me that given that we still are two years from the Senate election in 2020, that Purdue is – he's it's a roll of the dice. He may find that this strategy has more – causes him as much harm as it does good. 
Yeah, um, it's dangerous. I mean, look, this wasn't about Romney. This wasn't about Trump. This was about Purdue 2020. And I think what he's trying to do is he's thinking that it's just two years. So if he can just get the base and push the base, that the two years is not going to be long enough to get Georgia to the point, um, or at least I should say the people who are not Trump supporters to the point where they can kind of... um, you know, defeat him. But I think that's incredibly, incredibly dangerous. I think what we see with Trump is every day we have no idea what he's going to do. We have no idea what's going to come out in terms of the Mueller investigation. And to tie yourself to somebody that is that toxic um, when you've got two years to go, it is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. And I think what we see with all the people who are just ready and, you know, I mean, Scott Holcomb's already come out publicly. I mean, people are being very aggressive on social media about going after Purdue. And so he staked it out, like he said, and now he's going to he's going to be stuck with it. And if, if you know, uh, uh, Tamara and, and Heath, I know I, I know uh, we were talking about uh, Purdue thinks that he has better appeal in, in, in the metro Atlanta burbs. But I would argue that that people like Beth Beskin, like uh, uh, like uh, Senator, who 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 were we just talking about? Scott uh, Holcomb. No, 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 yeah. no. Uh, uh, in DeKalb. Fran Miller. Fran, thank Fran you Miller. very much, Fran Miller. You know, th- these are all Republicans who, who who likewise had very good reputations for 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 uh, for, for moderations or or uh, especially on issues that appeal to to suburbanites, and yet they got swallowed up on November sixth. That's right. We saw on the phone. We saw. Oh, go ahead, tomorrow. I'm sorry. The difference is in 2020, Donald Trump is going to be on the ballot and his people are going to come out in full force. And I think Purdue's people are also banking that they're going to be able to get a lot of those same voters as well. But there's a flip side to that, which is we're not in midterm anymore. And a presidential usually sees a more um, Democratic or Democratic-leaning turnout. And so it is it is a gamble. I mean, either it's going to work or it's not, right? Right. And Johnny Isaacson in 2016 got 55 percent of the vote the same year that the pres- President Trump got 50 percent of the vote plus a couple of minor percentage points. And so there was a five-point gap because Johnny Isaacson did not did not compromise on his conservative principles, but had been laying a base and an appeal to independent suburban voters uh, in a way that f- many Republicans around the country find challenging. And he was able to call balls and strikes on Trump policies doing that. He didn't. It wasn't an all-in uh, defense. Yeah, Johnny's good at that. I, I do want to say I think Heath is right. Long term, Republicans really need to pay attention to their coalitions, both nationally and in Georgia, and reach out. Uh, but it's hard to get political consultants to see around the next election. It really is. <laughs> well, here, here's I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Johnny Isaacson, Heath, because I think uh, and I want to get you all the way in on this. I think there's one thing that's very interesting about uh, the difference between Isaacson and Purdue. I suspect um, thanks to Audrey Hayes, University of Georgia, uh, we ha- I, she sent me the uh, Purdue voting record in relation to what the president wanted. He's at 95.2 or something percent in agreement with uh, uh, Trump. By the way, Audrey will be on the show tomorrow. Uh, I suspect Johnny Isaacson isn't far from that himself, Heath. I suspect he tends to vote with the president uh, quite often as well. But here's the difference. Purdue has been an outspoken, vociferous, and sometimes angry advocate of everything that Trump is doing. And it strikes me that that has maybe the potential to be of more trouble to him Certainly, than his voting record, it's it's optics. Yeah, it's not it's not just how you vote, but it's how you message that vote. And I think it's a unique challenge. And uh, Kerwin got this right. Uh, it's much easier in the short term to focus on short term elections. But I really do believe the Republican Party, my party, the party that I've worked with for the last twenty five years, uh, is in dire straits in the suburbs of America. Not just in Atlanta, not just in Savannah, not just in Columbus, the suburbs of, of all of our metropolitan areas, but all over America, of not recognizing it's your tone and it's not just it's not what you're doing it's not just what you're saying it's how you're saying it and there's that combination and i do think david purdue has the 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 ability both skill and personality wise to do that uh but the the focus groups were very clear in 2018 the single issue on the election in suburbia was donald trump himself not policies yep of course we're talking jim in a complete vacuum because we can easily talk about the strengths and weaknesses that a David Perdue may bring to his campaign in 2020. We don't have a clue 
who the Democratic uh, opponent of uh, his is going to be. Oh, we have we have a few hints. Well, <laughs> we have hints. All right. What do you, what, I, and Jen Jordan, you're kind of chuckling at that. Who is the who? Have you put your support behind anybody? Put your the, hat in the ring. Yeah. Well, you're no. not. <laughs> Do you have a candidate yet? No, I mean, and I think okay. that's what's so amazing after um, the past elections. We're actually going to get some looks from folks. And that's a really exciting place to be as a state for, for candidates for president to actually come here and talk to people and be seen and heard kind of in real life. And we have been denied that for so long that it's really going to be it's really going to be a crazy time. In yeah, the next it will be years. fun to see whether Georgia does become a, is in play in 2020 presidential. But I but the Senate race, we don't. We you've the, got the Senate race is going to determine it, whether we are when, in play or not. When do Democrats yes. meet in their state convention? <clears throat> January twenty uh, sixth. They, 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 like they have a January twenty sixth uh, uh, meeting. I think that's a state board meeting oh, okay. to elect a cha- to, uh, to elect a new chairman. Okay, right. that's not the convention. All right, it's, it's I, not. It's not. A, it's not a standard convention. It's oh. not an all all com- all called. Okay, I I'm glad you corrected me on that. The point is, by the end of January, and maybe I should ask you this first, Jen. Doesn't Stacey Abrams have to send a pretty strong signal about her intentions? How long can she freeze, say, a Teresa Tomlinson and others who might be interested in that Senate race? You know, I I think Abrams can do whatever Abrams wants to do (laughs) after this last election. Um, And and she's going to have the first bite at the apple if she wants it. But but I agree with you that— if we really want a shot at this U.S. Senate seat and going after Purdue, then we really need she needs if she does not intend to do it, then she needs to, to make that very loud and very clear, um, because we do have some incredible people. I mean, whether it's um, Teresa Tomlinson, I mean, Scott Holcomb's been yep. kind of saying some stuff. I mean, there have been plenty of names that have been kind of floated out there with really good people. But you have got to have resources and you've got to have name recognition. And none of these people have that in terms of a statewide race except at this for, point. Except for uh, the name of uh, Michelle Nunn, uh, who who I'm told is, is kind of looking at this thing. We'll decide maybe in the next few days, weeks or so. Uh, and she's already put in several million dollars worth of name ID. Yeah, yeah. that would be interesting. That yeah. would be interesting. I do think I do think if Stacey Abrams is not going to do it, it would behoove the Democrats to know that sooner rather than later. I do think they have a field of uh, a farm team that's really uh, better than we've seen in the past, and we as Republicans should not take that for granted. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's Kerwin. Jen is certainly correct. Stacey Abrams has earned the right to do whatever she wants to as a Democrat in Georgia. But she also clearly wants to think about the good of the state party and how the state party moves forward. Well, she's clearly the uh, the leader of the state party right now, whether she has an official title or not. Uh, I, I do think it's important that she send a signal sooner rather than later about her intentions. But I think the field is wide open for her. And I think whatever she does, uh, she'll be able to raise money at the drop of a hat. All right. I got to get our final break of the show out of the way. We're going to do that now. When we come back, have you been on an electric scooter lately? Maybe not, but you've seen them all around you, I'll bet you. We'll talk about the city of Atlanta and its efforts, perhaps, to put some rules in place about how scooters are used. This is Political Rewind. I'm Sandy Scott, Director of Marketing at the Booth Western Art Museum in Cartersville, Georgia. The Booth Museum is a 120,000 square foot art museum that also has a presidential gallery. The museum is actually the largest Western art museum in the Southeast. We underwrite with GPB because it reaches a, a multitude of people that we normally would not reach. To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org. On the next Fresh Air, the consequences of a childbirth injury, pain, secrecy, and a medical community that didn't know how to treat it. Terry speaks with Hilary Frank, creator of the award-winning parenting podcast, The Longest Shortest Time. Her pain in isolation led her to start the podcast. Her new book, Weird Parenting Wins, includes some of its stories. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB and gpbnews.org. We're back on Political Rewind. Um, So uh, tomorrow, when we went on the air, or as we were about to go on the air, I I said to to everybody gathered here, 
We'll talk about scooters by the end of the show because today the uh, city of Atlanta City Council is taking up uh, perhaps the first of a series of proposals for how to regulate them better in Atlanta. And Kerwin, you said you were up in Washington tomorrow, he said, and they were everywhere. Are you riding scooters uh, from your place to uh, to your office on the hill? <laughs> I am not because I am not a coordinated human being. <laughs> well, according <laughs> to Grady everywhere. Hospital, neither are a lot of people who are taking it. All right. Yes. Yeah. So, I live a few blocks from the zoo, and they are everywhere. Okay. So, Jim, uh, the Atlanta City Council is looking at regulations. We understand the problem. We see the scooters run by bird, run by lime. There are now thousands of them in metro Atlanta. They, uh, when they're being used— People whiz by on the sidewalks. They uh, can be rude. Uh, they can be slightly dangerous. When they're not using them, they're strewn all over sidewalks everywhere. There's no question that this entrepreneurial business, which has been extraordinary in its how it's uh, you know exploded in Metro Atlanta, does. You'd think it's fair to say some regulation isn't a bad idea. Yeah, yeah this is this is last mi- that last mile transportation. This is what Segway wanted to be, if you if you if you remember, yeah, and uh, and uh, could never be because uh, Segways were uh, a, a tad pricey. These are very cheap. Uh, they they go. Oh, I'd say uh, my my cycling uh, sp- speedometer says maybe 15, 18 miles an hour. Yeah, and one of the regulations would be that the the limit be set at fifteen miles an hour. By the way, right. And this uh, the 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 ordinance uh, would would require uh, these these scooter companies to put down about a twelve thousand uh, dollar uh, bond. Yep, yep. You'd have to ride them on the street. Instead of the sidewalk, I get it in a way, Jen, that Ooh. they're dangerous on the str- on the sidewalk. But oh my gosh, going 15 miles an hour no, on no mir- tree no mirrors, no mirrors, and no helmets. <laughs> that sounds awful. Like that does not sound like a good idea. But I think what we're seeing is the problem that we have with transit and transportation issues and traffic. I mean, it is starting to hit everybody. I had some neighbors call me the other day about Moore's Mill Road, and they were so angry that there was so much traffic coming over from Atlanta Road. And I'm like, well, because 50% of the people from Cobb County leave Cobb County every day to come into Fulton County to work. And it's like we're finally at a place where everybody is starting to be impacted. And I think these little bird scooters are just kind of one little symptom of it. You know, where I've noticed them is um, if you go to a a game at Mercedes-Benz Stadium, if you go see uh, Atlanta United uh, play, uh, people seem to be willing to park much further from the stadium in cheaper parking lots, and then you see them on their uh, birds or their limes heading right to the entrance to the stadium itself. I had a funny story, Bill. A friend of mine did that part 15 blocks away. He paid a lot less, got his bird, but then he went and hid his bird in the shrubbery <laughs> so that when he came out of the Atlanta United game, he knew it would still be there and just scooted off while everybody else was in gridlock. So <laughs> while you've got the ball, Heath, out your way, out out in your alma mater, well, yours too, Jim, out in Athens-Clark County, the University of Georgia, dogs. they passed a law in 2018, late in the year, banning scooters, at least temporarily, because they want to get some regulations in place, presumably. And the university has impounded more than 1,200 of those scooters, demanding $800,000 in fees. <laughs> Wow. This is really interesting, Jim, because you're talking about the wild west. There are not many things we can talk about anymore where there's kind of a wild west uh, entrepreneurial effort going on and regulations are so far behind. Yeah, this is this is kind of I, we grew up with what? Electric skateboards? That was the that was the big in- well, innovation. Well, you did. Uh, well, <laughs> I, we but, didn't have them. <laughs> okay, you had push scooters. Yeah, right. You had, you had the push scooters, and this is it's just. Uh, I I just think it's a marvelous uh, bit of entrepreneurship th- that we have to figure out as we go along. But I think it's cool that we have to we ha- we do have to figure out, and it's changing the dynamics of of how you get around in a city. Seems you know, like it happened all of a sudden. You know, yeah. <laughs> like in the last yeah. year, I think it's popped up. Um, you know, Jen, what's interesting to me about that is um, I assumed that there would be some state legislation introduced about this. Now, so far, to the best of my knowledge, no one has dropped a bill of this sort. And 
I was I was thinking they would so that we could then have a conversation about a Republican controlled legislature that believes in local control. But but now maybe well, wanting to regulate something like scooters. Well, I think it's one of those things where this is really a metro Atlanta or metro area problem. I mean, not to I'm originally from Dodge County. We don't have a bird or lime problem on the streets of Eastman, <laughs> Georgia. I mean, that is just not an issue. And so it really should be a local issue because whether it's safety or insurance issues or, you know, just where people should be on the street or on the sidewalk, I mean, local officials really know best when it comes to that type of stuff. Well, it's really interesting, you know, the state of Georgia quietly has probably the most uh, or the what they call best in class autonomous vehicle legislation in the country, which is inducing companies like Waymo from Google and Uber and Mercedes-Benz and all these other companies with all autonomous vehicles to look at Atlanta as, as a sandbox and a future destination of autonomous vehicles sooner than most other places in the country. But it is a question, right? The Wild West is good for entrepreneurship, for development of technology. Uh, and then if you really want to start to think about this stuff, go look up Uber flights where you're talking about two person helicopter flying autonomous vehicles uh they're saying within five years uber chopper is what uber robert chopper. jim robert yeah. jimison just said in my ear they call it uber chopper the sign of the apocalypse uh, <laughs> <laughs> no this is how we're going to get you to come make that long drive in from ksu more to be on the show we'll, well, we'll get just, you in an uber chopper that'll work or a helicopter <laughs> all right um final word on that Lime, this one of the two businesses that really has got the market, says that they have more than a hundred thousand users of their product uh, right here in Atlanta, and hundreds of thousands of rides. So they become ubiquitous. We'll watch to see what the Atlanta City Council and other municipalities around the state do on uh, these devices. Um, we're almost out of time. Uh, quick note, if I could, Jim. You pointed something out that I thought was interesting, too, and we're not going to get into a long conversation about it right now. But we now have – there's going to be a, a, a case heard in, in a Noonan courthouse in which a protester who was involved in an anti-Nazi protest in Noonan is going to argue that he was improperly arrested for wearing a mask to disguise his face during the demonstration, which is against the anti-masking laws that we have in place. 1951 statute. It's just fascinating because it was put in place to enforce members of the KKK to show us who they really were by taking off their masks. Right. Right. It, 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 it is a, a, a political cultural clash. Uh, the fellow name, the fellow's name is Alan Hutzel. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, he was supposed to go to court today. I haven't heard back from um, haven't heard out of that courtroom to, to see what went on. So here's a guy in an anti-Nazi protest. Uh, presumably against the Klan as well, saying he should be allowed to wear a mask. And this was this was the fashion at the at the 2016 convention in Cleveland. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you, saw, you saw a lot of this this happen. It's uh, it's an interesting form of anonymous speech. Well, the prop the question is, and then we we're really out of time. The question is, if the court rules that he's right, that he can wear that mask, that he was not in violation of the law, do we then turn around and see Klansmen? Once again, wear hoods because there are people who will tell you the anti-masking law had a, uh, a suppressive effect on membership in the Klan because people didn't want to be seen as being part of that. Well, I think it depends on exactly what kind of evidence he brings to bear. I think part of the argument that he's making is that these kind of anti um, Nazi protesters don't want people to know their identity because they're scared in terms of their own right. personal safety. Right. That is very different in terms of suppression of speech of, of someone with the KKK who just doesn't want people to know who they are. All right. We are completely out of time. I think that distinction is one of the things the court's going to look at, and we'll see. We'll follow that case. And I know you're thinking about writing about it uh, in the newspaper. Right? Wednesday. Okay. Um, Tamar Hallerman, Kerwin Swint, Jen Jordan, Senator Jen Jordan, uh, Heath Garrett, Jim Galloway, thank you for joining us for today's show. We'll be back tomorrow at 2, but let me very quickly point out, uh, GPB Radio and TV are going to be your home for the inauguration of Brian Kemp as governor. Next Monday, we're going to do a special edition of Political Rewind at 1 o'clock, and then at 2 o'clock, we will bring you the entire inaugural ceremony and uh, have a little wrap-up afterwards. So next Monday, the 14th, Join us for all of that and more. But in the meantime, see you tomorrow at 2.